Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 246, The Romanov Children, Part 2. Last time, we began the two-part series on the children of the Lazar of Russia, Nicholas II. Today, we begin in 1906, the year after the First Russian Revolution, where pressure is mounting on the Tsar. Olga was 11, Tatiana 9, Maria 7, Anastasia 5, and Zarevich Alexei 2. Grigory Rasputin had met the royal couple, but it wasn't until later in 1906 that he would begin to have an influence on the family, especially the Tsarina and the Tsarevich. We are seven years away from the 300th anniversary of the Romanov family coming to power and eight years from the start of World War I. One little tidbit that I wanted to share about the Russo-Japanese War was about Seraphim of Sarov. Remember, last episode, when I mentioned that he had been hastily canonized as a saint to help Alexandra bear the Tsar a son? Well, he was also the patron saint of the war not a portend of good fortunes for the Romanov family. Russia was in a state of turmoil. Not only had the 1905 revolution brought some minor changes in the government with the creation of the Duma, it had shattered the belief in the Tsar as godfather of Russia who would protect his people. Now, he was considered Bloody Nicholas, especially after Bloody Sunday in January 1905. His wife, Alexandra, was increasingly despised, even by some members of his extended family. The children, though, were sacrosanct. They were above the fray. For now. One of the things that stood out for me about the five children of Nicholas and Alexandra was how unique they were from each other. Of course, this is to be expected, but the differences were pretty stark. Using the fabulous work by Helen Rappaport, the Romanov sisters, I'd like to share insights into each of the girls' personalities. Afterwards, I'll focus more on the heir to the Romanov throne, Alexei. Let's start with the first child. Quote, Olga was curious and full of questions. Once, when a nursemaid reprimanded her for her grumpiness, saying that she got out of bed on the wrong foot, the following morning, Olga had pertly asked which was the right foot to get out with so that the bad foot wouldn't be able to make her naughty today. Cranky, scornful, and difficult, she certainly could be, especially during puberty, and her flashes of anger revealed a dark side that she sometimes found difficult to control. But also, Olga was a dreamer. During a game of I Spy with the Children, Alexandra noted that Olga always thinks of the sun, clouds, sky, rains, or something belonging to the heavens, explaining to me that it makes her so happy to think of that. As for the second daughter, quote, Tatiana, at eight years old, was pale-skinned, slender, and with darker auburn hair, and eyes rather grayer than the sea blue of her sister's. She was already arrestingly beautiful, the living replica of her beautiful mother, 
with a naturally imperious look, enhanced by her fine bones and tilted-up eyes. On the surface, she seemed an extraordinarily self-possessed young girl, but she was, in fact, emotionally cautious and reserved, like her mother. Rappaport further goes on, quote, Tatiana was unquestionably devoted. It was she in whom Alexandra always confided. She was the most polite and deferential at the table with adults, and proved to be a natural-born organizer with a methodical mind and a down-to-earth manner that her sisters could not match. No wonder her sisters called her the governess. Next up is Maria. According to Rappaport, quote, The third sister, Maria, was a shy child who suffered later from being piggy in the middle between her two older sisters and her younger siblings. Her mother may have coupled her with Anastasia as the little pair, but as time went on, Maria occasionally found herself adrift from Anastasia and Alexei, the more natural little pair, and she sometimes felt that she did not get the love and attention she craved. Her strong physique made her seem rather ungainly, and she had a reputation for clumsiness and boisterousness. Yet for many who knew the family, Maria was by far the prettiest, and her peaches and cream complexion, her rich brown hair, and an earthy Russian quality not possessed by any of the other children. The fourth girl. Anastasia would be the most impish of all. Quote, it was perhaps inevitable that Maria would be completely enthralled to the dominating personality of her younger sister, Anastasia. For the youngest Romanov daughter was a force of nature in whose presence it was impossible to remain indifferent. Even at four years old, she was a very sturdy little monkey and afraid of nothing. Of all the children, Nastasia, or Nastya, as they called her, was the least Russian in looks. She had dark blonde hair like Olga, and her father's blue eyes, but her features were very much like those of her mother's Hess family. Rappaport further describes her, quote, Everything with Anastasia was a battle of wills. She was an impossible pupil, distracted, inattentive, always eager to do, be doing anything other than sit still. Yet despite not being academically bright, she had an instinctive gift for dealing with people. So at, at times, as she got bigger, she could be rough and even spiteful when playing with other children, scratching and pulling hair, leading to complaints from her cousins when they visited that she was nasty to the point of being evil when things didn't go her way. Before we move on to Alexei, I have to share the fact that by now, the Romanov royal family was almost entirely German in heritage. It has been estimated that Tsar Nicholas II was 97% German, so his children would be a percent or two more. This is important to bring up because when World War I began, it would be etched into the Russian people's mindset, which did not bode well for the family or the children. Alexei Nikolaevich was the family's focus, yet his health was one of the great secrets of the time. Those who knew the royal families of Europe 
must have suspected that Alexei had the disease, as his mother came from a family tree with numerous other male children born with the horrible disorder. Not only did Alexei have hemophilia, he had hemophilia B, the worst of the two types you could get. Because of his disorder, Alexei was highly protected from birth. When he was baptized, quote, the baby lay on a pillow of cloth of gold, slung to the princess's shoulders by a broad gold band. He was covered with a heavy cloth of gold mantle, lined with ermine, worn by the heir to the crown. Since her parents were, by orthodox custom of the day, they were not present. They had the elderly princess Maria Mikhailovna Galitsin carry the baby to the font. Instead of wearing high heels, as was the style of the time, she had rubber soles put on her shoes to prevent her slipping and dropping him. Further scaring many in attendance, the priest who had baptized Alexei was the incredibly old Father Yaneshev. Even the parents were frightened that he might drop the baby. Any fall or bump that might happen to Alexei could be life-threatening. He had two full-time attendants watching him wherever he went. Petty officer Andrei Derevenko and his assistant Simon Clementi Nagorny. Alexei was spoiled rotten, according to many who observed him at the court. Still, he cared deeply for the suffering of others due to his own affliction, something that would become more and more apparent when World War I began. The Tsar's Colonel Mordinov remembered Alexei, as recounted in Charlotte Zipak's book, The Camera and the Tsar's, a Romanov family album. Quote, he had what we Russians called a golden heart. He easily felt an attachment to people. He liked them and tried to, to do his best to help them, especially when it seemed to him that someone was unjustly hurt. His love, like that of his parents, was based mainly on pity. Zarevich Alexei Nikolaevich was an awfully lazy, but very capable boy. I think... He was lazy precisely because he was capable. He easily grasped everything. He was thoughtful and keen beyond his years. Despite his good nature and compassion, he undoubtedly promised to possess a firm and independent character in the future. Because of the events of 1905 and the growth of the revolutionary movement, the Tsar and his family were kept relatively isolated within their numerous homes. As Rappaport puts it, quote, Such was the solitary existence of the four Romanov sisters that, by 1909, apart from each other's company and occasional contact with other royal cousins, they were largely reliant on the friendship of adults, their Aunt Olga, a few close officers, servants, and ladies-in-waiting, and a 40-year-old reprobate and religious maverick whose continuing influence over their family life was already sowing the seeds of their ultimate destruction. Of course, the 40-year-old reprobate she mentions is Rasputin. In the summer of 1909, though, the family was able to travel to visit relatives in France and England. The voyage was a particularly rough one as they took the yacht Standard via the North Sea. Almost 
everyone got sick on the trip, especially Tatiana. The boat rocked so much that there was fear that Alexei might get injured and die. England, at the time, was not the welcoming country that the Romanovs might have expected. Nicholas II was despised by many as the perpetrator of Bloody Sunday, the inept leader who lost the Russo-Japanese War, as well as the person who permitted the numerous anti-Semitic pogroms that raged through Russia at the time. Security during their entire time in England was about as tight as it could be. This animosity toward the Tsar would lay the groundwork for the British refusal to grant the royal family asylum after the revolution of 1917. By 1910, there was a distinct separation between the big pair and the little pair, with Maria being the odd child out. Alexei, on the other hand, was having a rough go of it. His arms and legs were hurting him all the time. Here, we begin to see the growing influence of Grigory Rasputin, who would visit the royal family twice in January and February. Each time he would sit with them, comforting the young boy. Sofia Taicheva, the children's governess, would complain about Rasputin's visits. She complained to Grand Duchess Zinya, saying, quote, He's always there, going into the nursery, visits Olga and Tatiana while they're getting ready for bed, sits there talking to them and caressing them. Tycheva would not be the only person within the tight circle around the royal family to object to Rasputin's now untethered access to the Romanovs. However, there were many close to Alexandra who supported the growing relationship that Rasputin had with the children and the Tsarina. These include Lily Den, Anna Vairubova, who authored the book Memories of the Russian Court, and Isa Buchovedin. They were all convinced that Taicheva was the source of the growing gossip mill surrounding Rasputin and his relationship with Alexandra and the kids. But that horse was already out of the stable. Marriage was now being thought of for the oldest girl, Olga, as well as Tatiana, although to a far lesser degree. One of the first suitors was her English cousin, Prince Arthur of Connaught. Olga was now 16, but Arthur's matchup would have been a bit awkward as he was already 27. Alexandra, always relatively weak, was, by 1911, rarely seen in public. Olga and Tatiana would oftentimes step in for their mother during state ceremonies. One time, while out with their father Nicholas at the Kiev Municipal Theater, they heard shots ring out. Dmitry Bogrov had attacked Prime Minister Pyotr Stolepin, hitting him twice. Stolepin would survive for three days before succumbing to his wounds. Bogrov would be executed ten days later. This was the tenth assassination attempt on Stolepin's life, which put great fear into everyone's hearts within the administration, especially the now paranoid Alexandra. By 1912, with Zarevich Alexei now eight, he was suffering from his disease quite often. The court pediatrician, Dr. Sergei Ostrovsky, recommended that Alexei take it easy and avoid moving as much as possible. According to a letter found by Robert Massey, quote, 
So what do you think Alex did, the fool? When Ostrovsky returned a week later, he found Alexei leaping and running with his sisters. The empress, responding to the doctor's look of utter horror, said, I wanted to surprise you. Ostrovsky admitted that, after such surprises, one simply gives up. The reason given by others for Alexandra's ignorance of the doctor's advice is simple. It's Rasputin. He told the Tsarina to disregard the doctors and to allow the boy to enjoy life, and that God and he, Rasputin, would save him. Alexandra could not control Alexei, giving that job to Olga, who was similarly incapable. Only Nicholas could do that, and he was often away taking care of the state's business. An incident occurred in early October of the year that almost took the young boy's life. He jumped into a boat, banging his thigh against an orlock, causing a deep bruise. He became feverish by the 6th, rising to 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.9 degrees Celsius. Alexei's heart rate fluttered. His breathing became labored, sending fear into the family that he would not survive. As Rappaport puts it, quote, Alexandra barely left Alexei's bedside with Olga and Tatiana both taking turns to sit with him. Refusing to rest or eat, they forced him to listen to him, crossing themselves and crying out over and over, with each contracting pain he would go, Gospodzi pomilu, or Lord have mercy on me. As the intensity of his screams faded into a hoarse cry, and he slipped in and out of delirium, Mama, he called out in one of his lucent moments, don't forget to put a little monument on my tomb when I am dead. Last rites were given to Alexei, but Alexandra tried one last thing, contacting Rasputin. He wasn't anywhere near, so Anna Vyrobova sent a telegram to him in Pokshruskoy in the Rostov Oblast. Grigory responded with two telegrams. The first one saying, quote, The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. The second said, quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Miraculously, to everyone in attendance, the Zarevich indeed survived. The public was told of his recovery, but there was no mention whatsoever that Alexei had hemophilia. That would change on November 9th, when the British journal Hospital reported that he was indeed affected by the disease. It would be picked up the next day in the New York Times. The headline read, Czar's heir has bleeding disease, followed by long, a characteristic of European royal families, and still persists. 1913 would be an important year for the Romano family. It marked the 300th anniversary of their descendants, and then of their descendant, Michael and his rise to the throne of Russia. It would also be Olga's 18th birthday. Tatiana, though, could not join her older sister at the celebration of her birthday on February 23rd due to the coming down with typhoid fever. It was now the first time the Russian press was allowed to report on the oldest Romanov girl as she was presented to the outside world at a grand ball. Olga would fall in love with a captain in the Tsar's escort, Alexander Konstantinovich Shvedov, 
this infatuation would only last a short time. Although, laid up in bed, Tatiana asked to have some of the officers stationed at the Winter Palace walk by her window. Ah, the pair were coming of age quickly. Olga fed, fell head over heels in August for another young man named Pavel Voronov. She would write in her diary about him, using the letter S, standing for the Russian words for treasure. And I know I'm going to pronounce these wrong, but Sokrovice, Solnitsi, or Sunshine, and Shasti, happiness. This partnering was way below her standing in society, so it said that Nicholas and Alexandra created a union between Voronov and Olga Klein-Mikhail. The Duchess's heart was broken. Moving forward a year, with World War I breaking out and the number of Russian casualties growing by day by day, Olga and Tatiana were called into service as nurses. They, along with their mother, were called the Sisters Romanovna, numbers 1, 2, and 3. The younger girls were used as visitors to the wounded and convalescing soldiers. This would go on for the next three years until the revolution of 1917. For his part, Alexei would spend quite a bit of the war by his father's side, especially when Nicholas decided to take control of the army in 1915, a move many say was the nail in the coffin for the Romanov dynasty. The Zarevich was well-liked by the men at the Stavka headquarters. When Major General Sir John Hanbury Williams, head of the British military at Stavka, was told that his son had died in battle, the story goes that Alexei went to comfort him. He is said to have told Hanbury Williams, quote, Papa told me to come sit with you as he thought you might feel lonely tonight. It was December 1916. The family was only months away from being imprisoned after Nicholas II abdicated his throne on March 15, 1917. The family would suffer another shock in December 1916 when they learned of the murder of Grigory Rasputin. They were horrified to learn that it was planned by Prince Felix Yusupov, Dmitry, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, and right-wing politician Vladimir Hurskevich. Olga was said to have told a fellow nurse, Valentina, quote, maybe it was necessary to kill him, but not in such a terrible way. Two months later, in February 1917, as if things couldn't get any worse, the children came down with measles. Not only was the war going poorly, but talk of revolution was everywhere. For the most part, the children were kept away from the rumor mill, but they all knew something was up. To make matters worse, worse, very much worse, with the talk of their father Nicholas's abdicating, he was nowhere to be found. Nicholas was forced to stay away from the infected family, remaining at Stavka. Alexandra was beside herself, commenting in her diary, quote, Terrible things are going on in St. Petersburg. The most loyal regiments, the Pavlovsk Guards, and even the Preobrzhensky Lifeguard Regiment, begun by Peter the Great, had mutinied. The end of the Romanov dynasty was at hand. After the family was reunited with Nicholas, they were quickly taken into custody. Talk of seeking asylum in Great Britain was squashed pretty quickly, partly due to the UK royal family image, 
More importantly, the government believed that if they were allowed to enter England, it would cost the Russians continued participation in the war. At first, the Romanovs were under house arrest at Sarskoy Selo. Still, with the unrest within St. Petersburg, now known as Petrograd, mounting, they were moved to the town of Tobolsk in western Siberia. The provisional government, led by Alexander Kerensky, felt that they would be safe there. The family lived in a comfortable mansion until the October Revolution brought the Bolsheviks to power. The Sovnarkom, known as the Council of People's Commissars, ordered most of the subsidies that kept the family at ease to be drastically reduced. By March 1918, the Romanovs were moved to Ekaterinburg with the intention of bringing Nicholas back to Moscow to stand trial. The Romanov children were very well aware that they were in dire straits. Boredom became the number one problem for the children. But sadly, in June 1918, Tatiana, Anastasia, and Maria celebrated their 21st, 17th, 19th birthdays, their last, on July 17, 1918, in the basement of the Apatyev house, Nicholas, Alexandra, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia and Alexei, along with the Tsar's doctor and four servants, were brutally murdered. What began as a life of incredible hope ended suddenly and horribly. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as I talk about a, another great author in Russian history, one that I had kind of missed before, and that would be Anton Chekhov. So, until next time, Das Vidanya. И спасибо за внимание.